Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear Matthew Shinoda speaking with Chris Abani about poetry in Nigeria, the oral and religious traditions in African poetry, and the one-sided conversation between African and European poets. Chris Abani was born and raised in Nigeria during the country's rule by military dictators. His first novel, Masters of the Board, was published when he was still a teenager and landed him in prison. After two additional stints in prison for his politically charged writings, during which Abani witnessed horrific brutalities as he and other prisoners were routinely tortured, Abani escaped to England, where he earned an M.A. in English from the University of London. In 1999, he settled in the United States, earning a Ph.D. in Literature and Creative Writing from the University of Southern California. A devout Christian, Abani's faith also incorporates traditional African beliefs, accepting the contradictions and vagaries of a universe in flux. As such, his writing has a sense of hope and optimism, even when dealing with cruelty and loss. Abani has received the Guggenheim Fellowship, the Penn USA Freedom to Write Award, and numerous other awards. He is currently a professor at the University of California, Riverside. Matthew Shinoda is an award-winning writer who has taught and lectured extensively in the fields of ethnic studies and creative writing. He is currently Associate Dean of the School of Fine and Performing Arts at Columbia College in Chicago. This conversation took place at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago in March 2013. We'll hear Chris Abani read from his own work and from other Nigerian poets. We begin with Abani giving an overview of the history of poetry in Nigeria and describing the importance of oral traditions and religious beliefs in African poetry. To talk about poetry in Africa as a whole, actually, but, but in Nigeria, you, you have to go back to the notion of the oral poet. Um, and someone like Isidore Okwewo, uh, in books like Epic in Africa and Myth in Africa, has set that up. So it's a good resource if people want to, to look at that. But um, Nigeria is an interesting place because it seems that geographically the arts fall out in certain ways. So the Igbos or the eastern parts of Nigeria tend to produce more novelists. I don't know why that is. And in uh, in the western parts in the Yoruba cultures, you produce more playwrights and poets. Uh, I think it's because uh, Yoruba has had much more developed empires and empire tends to generate, as it were, you know, griots. So the orality kind of really you can see most effectively in, in Yoruba tradition particularly in the religious tradition. Uh, in Ifa, which is the traditional religion of the Yoruba, you will find what were called oriki. Oriki are praise poems. Uh, and so so Oromela, who's the deity of wisdom, you'd have a praise poem that begins something like, Oromela jana, ifa olokuna sorodayo. So you tend to find that um, even within the tonal language that it is, it still seems to follow almost an iambic beat because it's kind of spoken. You then have the particular parts of um, Ifa, which is really a corpus of religious study, uh, the holy book, as it were. And some parts have been written down. There's a beautiful book by one day Abimbala, Professor Abimbala, that collects Ifa verses. But largely it's an oral system. And so Ifa essentially translates as the word of God. And so there are all these short verses that appear in divinations and so forth. And they follow a very particular order. And you can find that breakdown in Abimbala's book. But again, beautiful, short, almost psalm-like verses. So you have one about water, which is... Um, Ngoron shole awo mi, adefa funo mi, omi ntoro mbowaye, ebo wani kowashe, ogbebo rubo, bi omi babale, omi anekpa, 
which literally translates as the raging torrent is the diviner for water when water was coming into the world and he water said shall I be wealthy and he was asked to perform sacrifice now wherever a drop of water falls it becomes an ocean wherever a drop of water falls the wealth of a city grows wherever a drop of water falls it becomes an ocean and so you sort of see this beautiful stuff happening um, even also with Ifa there's a system of call and response called Iyere and so you would have the lead poet sort of go, Eriwo, yeah. And everybody would go, Oh, oh, no. And he would say, like, um, Oh, da kundele, da kundele, oh, You know, so there's, it's a beautiful system in that way. And then you have the poetry of the deity called Ogun, who is essentially the deity of iron, the deity of war, civilization, of innovation. Uh, but more interestingly enough, of poets. So it's really interesting that, that the god of war is actually the god of poets. And the form around uh, the poems and the poetry around Ogun are fascinating. They're called Ajala. And they're the most free verse style because essentially, unlike Oriki and uh, Iere and Ifa verses that are fixed in the structure, the only variation would be in how you delivered them in terms of slow, fast, quick, short. Uh, Ajala is completely internally improvised. So they're just very loose parameters. So every performance is never the same. Even when the, po the poet starts, it's a beautiful system. Then you've got other... I suppose poetic devices in, in the idea of proverbs, because every proverb is an elision. Even names in Ibn Yoruba are shortened forms of sentences and stories in a way. Um, then you also have actual uh, oral epics in, 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 in Nigeria. And I think one of the few, the only main one I think that's been transcribed into prose is called the Ozigi Saga, and it's translated by J.P. Clark, John Pepper Clark. So that kind of takes you sort of, let's say, let's just say from beginning of time to... Uh, 1920. <laughs> if you then start to look at what I would call the pre-independence and early independent Nigeria, which is about 1920 to 1966, we have printing presses, so we have the emergence of traditional literatures. And the poets that kind of occupy this period would be people like Gabriel Okara, uh, Dennis Osadebe, Wale Shoinka, uh, John Pepper Clark, and, and poets like Christopher Kibo. Uh, in many ways, Christopher Kibo was the most modernist thinking or the most modernist in his style and has defined actually I think to a large extent the kind of trend of Nigerian poetry till today. Unfortunately we lost Chris during the Nigerian Biafran Civil War and that has raised all sorts of questions about the artist's responsibility to society and, and so forth but he has this beautiful poem from the collection called Come Thunder and the poem is called Come Thunder and if you listen to it you can hear Almost that Yeatsian call, you can, you can, you can hear. It would almost sound, and this is a beautiful thing. It's written uh, in the early '60s, and it sort of pre-announces the Nigerian Biafran civil war. But it would work now. It would work in the context of uh, when after 9/11, I read this poem with a group of poets, and it seemed so immediate. Come thunder, by Christopher Kigbo. Now that the triumphant march has entered the last street corners. Remember, O oh dancers, the thunder among the clouds. Now that laughter broken in two hangs tremulous between the teeth, remember, O oh dancers, the lightning beyond the earth.
The smell of blood already floats in the lavender mist of the afternoon. The death sentence lies in ambush along the corridors of power, and a great fearful thing already tugs at the cables of the open air, a nebula immense and immeasurable, a night of deep waters, an iron dream unnamed and unprintable, a path of stone. The drowsy heads of the pods and barren farmlands witness it. The homesteads abandoned in the centuries brush fire witness it. The myriad eyes of deserted corn cobs in burning barns witness it. Magic birds with the miracle of lightning flash on their feathers. The arrows of God tremble at the gates of light. The drums of curfew pander to a dance of death. And the secret thing in its heaving threatens with iron mask the last lighted torch of the century. And so you sort of see this very uh, sort of is echoing that modernist moment in Europe is similar at this time. Then I suppose we would look at things like the post-Civil War movement because, you know, the Civil War in Nigeria really affected a, a lot of things. Uh, poetry tends to be a little briefer now. It's, it's also marred by military dictatorships. And, and so I would say 1970 to 79. And this would mark poets like Femi Osofison, Wole Shoinka, the Igbo poet Paul Undo, uh, Chinua Achebe starts to write poetry at this time, Niyo Sundare, Odiaf Wemon, Tanure Ojaide, Ken Sarawiwa, uh, Michael Echero, and, and J.P. Clark again kind of, you see he tends to, some poets roll over generations. And there's a very short poem by J.P. Clark about a city called Ibadan. And Ibadan is, is unique in Yoruba culture because it's the, it's the most modern city. It's actually a city that is not owned by anyone, and it's formed during the 19th century or your wars. And so post the Civil War, it seemed like a perfect poem. Uh, and so what he does is he tries to create an elegy and a praise at the same time. J.P. Clark, Ibadan. Ibadan, running splash of rust and gold flung and scattered among seven hills like broken china in the sun. And so again, you sort of see uh, there seems to be a steady progression in the way things are, are working. And I, I want to go quickly through to another generation, 1980 to 2002. And, and I call this the silenced generation, not because they were silent, but it seemed to be a moment in which no one seemed to be paying attention to a generation of amazing writers, fiction and poetry-wise. Um, this is a time when Nigeria, in Asoka, which is, was a big, important, and still is, uh, university town, we had the Ant Hill, which is a small cafe that seemed to have developed sl slam poetry way before slam became big in the U.S., and everyone performed there. And this, this group was silenced because of the lack of critical attention and publicity within Nigeria and therefore outside of Nigeria that seemed to make them invisible. You find poets like Esiaba, the late Esiaba Irobi, who was incredible. In fact, he was also a playwright, and he has this opening to uh, one of his plays called, uh, I can't remember now, I think it's something called The Hang, I think it's called The Hangman. But it's a short poetic sequence that he choreographs to martial arts and it's one of the most beautiful things you can see and hear. There's people like Patrick Cholano, there's Olu Oguibe, there's Obi Wakama, who actually is still writing and lives in the U.S. right now. Um, you find Uche Nduka, who's also still writing, and Uche breaks away, and I think it's sad because the silence makes the work of people like Uche invisible, who really begins, I would say, Uche is one of the first language poets from Nigeria. Yeah. Crazy, beautiful work. There's Ogagai Fodo, there's Sylvester Wechie, there's Victor Kigbo, Christopher's nephew. Um, there's Amai Day. Benokri starts to write poetry at this point. And then Ozemo Heto, Tanro Jaide. 
And there's also uh, Remy Raji. And so I want to read a very short poem by Remy about Lagos. It's called In Memoriam, Lagos, Remy Raji. Suppose the river appears to you in the shape of taps, or that the sun is awake all day in the rays of unquenchable lights. Suppose your streets leap with magic, the color of tar and hexagon marble, the calculus of the spider's web, a delta of trains and trams. Suppose your lagoon and lakes wear the whiteness of love boats, or by the beach you can kiss the mermaid without the fear of darkness. And when you have danced day to lameness, suppose you can choose your way home in the predictability of the hour, still unfurled to the purple smell of night. And suppose you're not prescribed to many dead ends of the road. Suppose you are what you are not, dioxide virgin of phosphates. And so again, you can clearly see Okibo's hands in here, but again, more and more you're starting to see a sort of a very definitive uh, lyric emerging, which is interesting because often you, one hears African poetry and thinks only in declaratives, but these sort of quiet moments also happen. The Breakthrough Generation, 2002 to 2008, and th this is the generation that really begins to reinscribe Nigerian poetry, both within and outside the country. Remy Raji is part of that. Obiwaka Mauchendoka, Ogagai Fuodo, Dike Okoro, Dumakalo, Nzoroma Noye, Tunya Dewale, Keokonta. And, and if you notice, there seems to be a lack of women on this list. And, and that's largely not because the poetry hasn't been written but in a very patriarchal system, women often get elided. So I, I want to read from this this kind of generation a poem by uh, an amazing um, female Nigerian poet. Her name is Lola Shonein, and this poem is called Open. She is a vagrant poem, a cautionary tale, an old story, an open book. Her belly opens and pages fly from it. Words fall to feet, letters flood the floor, questions mark her steps. Like Sylvia, she straddles and stumbles. Who will put her back together again? What will bind her and bring her to a close? And again, and just to throw this out because it may come up in conversation later, you notice that always Nigerian poets and African poets are constantly in dialogue with Western poets. Even the Western poets, it seems, are completely unaware of this other tradition on this side. So Sylvia Plath comes up, Yeats is coming up, all of these uh, conversations that I think are absolutely fascinating. I think the next poem I read will really sort of confirm this dialogue that is happening in the rest of the world that uh, doesn't happen so much here. So I want to just go quickly to the, what I call the future. And the future is like what's going on right now and continues to grow. And you find poets like Noram Azonye, uh, Abayomi Animashon, Tolu uh, Ogunlesi, Jumoke, Vesimo. I mean, there are so many. I'm just trying to uh, give give examples. And so I'm going to read a poem by, this is the last of this sequence, and then we can stop here, and then we can just launch into conversation, right? So this uh, poem is by Tolu Ogunlesi. What's really interesting is it's published in an American journal called Boxcar Poetry Review, which is run by a young guy in California uh, who's also a poet, Neil. Uh, and Neil is, is uh, biracial. He's from Saskatchewan, <laughs> lives in California, is a Mormon, has spent a lot of his life abroad. And so again, you know, it's sort of the America is a little bit more fractured than we like to think it is. But this poem is beautiful. It's called On Reading a Wedding in Hell by Charles Simich, by Tolu Ogunlesi. I'm sitting down to consider God doesn't exist. 
Here's my one and only unanswered question if you ignore wars, death and UFOs and girls. Dear Heavenly Justice, did you come in on the Big Bang bus? Are you leaving with it? Or did you really drive that double-decker layered into above firmament and below firmament? Simich arrives dripping a trail of black blasphemous ink. I close my eyes, my ears. He is a biased man. I am not. Dear Charles, your talent is proof that the zookeeper exists and the angels that your mind refuses to let go of and the love of the lovers who crowd your poetry and the sun and birds and pigs and the hell where weddings sometimes take place and the hell is the proof of heaven. That's beautiful. Yeah. So enter Chris Aban. <laughs> you, you come into this tradition in various ways. Um, you borrow from it, you work alongside it, you break from it. You also embody both that historical root and several spaces in diaspora, both in, in the UK and in the United States. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about how the tradition you've just really beautifully illuminated feeds into your own aesthetic and, and how that drives your work, where perhaps we could argue your roots are there, but your your branches are flowering in various other spaces as well. Well, I mean, it's a it's a beautiful and tough question. So, <laughs> as I was when I was going through the list, you you start to realize that that Nigerian literature or, or African poets. I, I'm going to go as far as to say African, only because there are no Africans. But then it just allows us to kind of ag aggregate a continental moment. But but we resist uh, generational placement. So you find uh, someone like Wallace Shoenka, whose writing starts way in the 50s, and you still find him writing today and not re, re not recreating the old material, but engaging with the new generation. So that's almost how I see myself as a sort of a, uh, moving forward through this stream of poetry, going backwards and forwards. I, I grew up in, in small Igbo towns, uh, speaking Igbo. And, 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 and Igbo, like a lot of... Um, Nigerian languages is an inferential language. You know, it's not a language of transaction. Transactions occur, but but the philosophical import, the philosophical drive, the the moment to consider every moment as something significant, is there, and that's largely because I think African religions, particularly Ifa and traditional Igbo religions, um, can contend with the notion of randomness in the universe. But rather than seeing randomness as evil or necessary, they believe it to be a necessary part of growth and a significant thing. And so I guess that's really why you find proverbs. And so I, I was, you know, I had, um, I would do something wrong. Or I would, as a young person, I'd ask an inappropriate question when my elders were talking and my father would look at me and say something like, although the Igbo say, you know, to the person who asks questions never gets lost. Still, it is only a foolish man who would wake a leopard to ask the way to the market. And you're like, what? <laughs> I don't understand. And then you'd be left to figure out what, was, what you were being told in a way. And so already the relationship to spoken, to written language is one where uh, every line has multiple layers of meanings and is already cross-referencing traditions and stories, flora and fauna. And so when I grew up, speak with an English mother, so I had all of that English tradition with a Nigerian father who was educated in Oxford. So I guess even when I approached English, I approached English in, with the same malleability of mind that Igbo would have. And so then, and you notice this with a lot of poets from where I come from, um, English is plastic. 
It's elastic. It can be reshaped. It can be re-envisioned. Then if you add to that this notion that everything is spiritual, everything has religious connotation, not in so much a notion of a faith-driven, but the idea that there is always awe and wonder. There's always a thing that's inexplicable. And so the thing that is inexplicable is never denied, but rather poetically contained. And so growing up, I went to seminary to be a priest. So then you have all the influence of Latin mass. You have all the influence of the Psalms. And, you know, for a long time when I was growing up, everyone was convinced Bob Marley was from Nigeria. So then you find reggae plays a huge part in it because here's someone giving voice to the voiceless. And, and But at the same time, it's a... So, like, you have a musician like Fela Kuti in the 70s who everyone loves because of the social relevance, but like Elvis and the parents of the Americans and Elvis' generation who saw Elvis as this terrible influence, our parents thought Fela was a terrible influence. And yet my dad loved, he loved Bob Marley in a strange way because my dad's favorite musician was Jim Reeves. And so he's sitting in my dad's car and a song like, you know, Don't let me cross over, loves it. You know, this very Christian country lyrics are going on. And then suddenly it's like, lively up yourself. <laughs> so all of this has a tremendous influence on my thinking and my writing. Uh, reading the Russians as a young man, reading comic books. So, and then realizing that this orality is not a, a poetry that no longer exists. It's a continuation down to, if you go to Lagos, um, the bus conductors uh, so buses don't work in the same way they do here. There's a bus stop, but buses aren't run by the city. They're run by individuals. And so everyone's calling passengers. So even that becomes a... So if you pulled up in a central terminus like Oshodi, you would hear people going, Yanakbaja Street, Yanakbaja, Blackbar, don't enter, don't enter. So even the calling of passengers becomes this call and response. And so you would hear the conductors going, yaba, 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 and the passengers going, blegba, blegba, blegba. And so the whole living, the whole moment of it is, is art. And so all of that begins to impact the way I write. But because it is constantly in motion, when you live in a Nigeria, Nigeria all the time, or you completely accept this, it becomes something that is inflexible. So then I start to break away from that. I start to find the places for, you know, unorthodox voices, the, the moments in which you can mix a Beethoven with a Bob Marley. And, and so my, my, my work is always looking for a different thing. But always you will find it's holding on to this incantatory quality. Yeah. And, and how are you finding the diaspora has influenced this? You're, you're, you know, you, you live and write and teach in the United States at present. Um, you're very well aware of American poetic traditions. How does that enter into this space? And in a world where that you've, you've clearly articulated sampling and borrowing and exchange and, and engagement with various traditions is, is quite natural and, and common. What, what has the diaspora brought to your work in that way? It's, it's interesting because when we think about the ways in which even music develops in, in West Africa. You know, you have the notion that a group of people are forcibly taken to another country. So let's call it slavery. <laughs> and then a music emerges from Malinka styles that becomes, we can call it the blues. 
This travels back with African-American sailors to the ports of Ghana, where young men pick up these guitar chords. And so you find in somewhere like Ghana, high life emerges. And so constantly it would seem to me that the dialogue has already existed between Africa and the diaspora, particularly this notion of a black diaspora. Mm. Almost all of the, the, the movements towards independence in, in West Africa emerge from leaders who are often educated in black American universities. Yeah. That Gavi uh, is really the guiding figure. So that the, the emergence of, of, uh, of sort of freedom movements in the Caribbean spilling into black American movements, the civil rights movement, begins to create the foundations for all of that. So I feel like there's always been this conversation. And so when I arrived here, I immediately found that conversation and immediately felt completely at home. And also, even within what one would normally think of as non-African traditions, you can't have all, you can't have, I mean, if you think about Robert Hayden, who's writing at the same, roughly, you know, you would almost call him a peer of Langston Hughes, or not the same age, but so there are two different styles, you know. One is really calling up the blues in this way, and, and this other, you know, Hayden is really writing almost like Wallace Stevens is writing. And so I, I suddenly realized that for for true African poets, for and I use the word African by, by descent, by inheritance, by vibration, there's always been this dialogue, and it's easy to find that happening in Eastern European poets who have migrated here. So I guess for me what happens is I, st I started to realize how much of the American lyric uh, can move outside of the, its limitations of being sort of this individual poet's view of the world and become this almost this, an epic that is built of small steps. Your work has, has never shied away from difficult subject matter. Um, and <laughs> my work, I write about <laughs> roses. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wonder if, I mean, in in all of what you're you're articulating right now, there's clearly a sense of awe, as you have talked about, of wonder, of a, a, a spiritual influence in the work, um, a, a struggle towards what we might loosely call some sort of beauty, mm -hmm. um, which which resonates absolutely mm -hmm. in in all of your work, but. In that, you never shy away from the implication of all that is negative in humanity, the implication right. of war, the implication of the body and all of the myriad forms that has been right. abused. And, and, and I, w I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that openness and willingness to kind of head straight for the heart and the truth of a matter, no matter how ugly it might be. And then your really stunning ability to find something beautiful in that. Well, I guess I, in, in many ways I'm unabashedly re religious. And, and I don't mean this in the limited ways we think of religion. But really religion is a language that defines something that's essentially human about us. So, so in that way, I would say Einstein is deeply religious. Carl Sagan was deeply religious. Every biophysicist I meet is deeply religious. It doesn't really matter what what canon you're working with. It's this notion of awe, this constant idea of the discovery of the fact that even within within what seems like a limitation is always a possibility. I grew up in a very Catholic home, deeply Catholic home, but at the same time with a, with grandfathers who were deeply involved in traditional religions. Mm -hmm. um, 
And you know, the beautiful thing about Catholicism in Africa is it did not in, in any ways try to erase traditional religions. It figured the best way to do was to try and get along and pretend that those things weren't happening. So I think a lot of my relationship to, to, to this notion of difficulty is actually quite biblical. Because if you read the Bible, it's quite an informative text. If you were to look at Samuel alone and look at the, the, the trials of King David or Job, or even if you were to look at those moments of Jesus' life, you know, some really interesting moments like the moment in Gethsemane where, as one of my students put it when I was trying to describe this moment to him, he said, so you're saying Jesus just punked out. <laughs> um, what you, what you start to find is a constant negotiation between the idea of what is material and what is immaterial. And that no matter how difficulty and tortured and gross the material remains, that which is truly human transcends all of that. And so that's really what the struggle is always in my work, is to find this moment. And I think, you know... Um, you probably have had this conversation with Kwame too, and I know you and I have, of over reggae, where in a three-minute pop song, you have lament, you have sorrow, you have the love song, you have the resistance. Um, and this is what I, so this is what I love about it, the, no, the idea that, that uh, an imagination can contain uh, an acceptance of difficulty that is not submission, but rather contains also within it resistance. But that articulation of that, on those two contradictions becomes can only generate poetic a poetic voice or a poetic sensibility because that's all that can can hold it. I mean, this is visible in every psalm, for instance. But you know, it's also in Igbo culture. There's an old proverb that says, "A child can never escape their own shadow." And so the notion is oh, the world is, is always a reflection of these two struggles. So Igbo thinking accepts it. So growing up in a very traditional Nigerian middle-class setting, being both Catholic and going to seminary and being kicked out for heresy, um, but also growing up with this traditional thinking, you realize that for, for, for most Africans, and you, I would suggest that if you went all the way from ancient Egypt to now, the belief is that this is how the world is articulated. There is this and that, not this or that. Mm -hmm. And so Western thinking is this or that. It cannot accept two things. There's a victim and, a, and an oppressor. In Africa, the victims are kind of oppressors, and the oppressors are kind of victims. So this idea that we, that always, that never takes away personal responsibility, which means that it never takes away hope. And this is really vital because this is, I think, what gets lost when people articulate singular worldviews, is that then the, ratio, the erasure of difficulty is what they think is the reinforcement of hope. But it's actually the contentment of that difficulty within and, and rediscovering transubstantiation into light that is really what hope is. This reminds me of the, the African-American theoretician Bell Hooks who mm -hmm. once argued that those of us who love justice, refuse simplistic binaries. There you go. And I think in that struggle to find what, however we define a sense of justice, we have to refuse binaries, which means something that you said I think is, that's really important is an embrace of contradictions. Yes. And I, I have found both through my own life and just the world around me, diaspora is the ultimate contradiction. That's right. Um, and, and I'm curious as to how you see that playing in your work. I think, uh, you, you know, what you're talking about, I think, butts up against 
perhaps some, not entirely, but some mainstream notions in American literature that really have not been open to the embrace of contradiction. This idea of, of selling out, this idea of not being able to engage two things that don't seem to work together, but finding a way to make them work together. And in that process, one forces a very singular narrative that I think in the world of poetry causes the work to suffer. Yeah. It's that complexity, right. that that embrace of contradiction that for me anyways makes certain aesthetics far more interesting than others. And I, I wonder if you can talk about that specifically in how you've navigated that through your own aesthetic leanings, which, which can be at times referred to as quote experimental um, and, and at times not seen as traditional. I don't think anyone reads your work in a particularly traditional way, but as as someone who is who is pushing those boundaries in various ways and using an artistic aesthetic to explore that space. Hmm. Yeah, I love all these easy questions, man, I have to <laughs> say. <laughs> um, so Jimmy Baldwin, yeah, J James Baldwin is, is a writer I wish I could have been. So Baldwin talks about the idea of dialogue in all forms as a, as a notion of love. And not he says not sentimental love, although that is certainly a part of it. He says it's the it's the it's the it's the recognition that it involves giving up parts of each other to each other. And so what that what that's really saying is that whether we whether we welcome a particular viewpoint or not, we have to have given up something to allow that viewpoint to exist in us long enough for us to decide we don't we don't want it. And this is a beautiful way to think of the world. And this is something I find completely lacking in in in, in, in very modern, I think, contemporary American thinking. And I don't mean this, I mean in, in terms of academic thinking and in terms of all academies in a sense, because academies get built around the notions of power. And so this leads to ridiculous ideas like, well, the language poets are over here and the confessional poets are over here. And instead of saying, well, isn't it incredible that a language poet is trying to break through to something, again, which Baldwin is talking about, a moment of complete awe by disassembling the tools by which we would blasely or sentimentally reach to that thing. And then a lyric poet is trying to do the same thing within the tools that we might think would lead to sentimentality. So both of these resistances become important. So then I often find I don't understand what the fight between certain schools becomes about. And so what that does is that it, 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 it sort of, rather than the impetus being the question, um, the impetus becomes the answer. So, you know, I, I was when I was growing up after the Civil War, in Nigeria, we had lost a lot of young Biafrans. And so a lot of my teachers were imports from India, from Pakistan. And I've talked in the past about the power of, of some of those teachers. But I, but I, you know, I remember always, again, I had a Pakistani teacher in primary school, Mr. Khalid, who was a deeply Muslim thinker, but believed in, in, the, in the notions of how Judaic questioning worked. And so I remember in class, you know, I was one of those really annoying kids that sat in the front. So I always had my hand up. Yes, sir, sir, pick me, sir. And I always had the answer. And so finally one day he called me aside and he said, you, you give good answers, don't you? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, and I said, but people don't like me because of that. And he said, no, I, I don't know whether you should worry about that. I think what you should try to do is ask yourself if you can ask good questions. Mm -hmm. 
And this, again, these sort of, this is really what is the impetus of all art, is to ask the good question. And I think that poetry is about, to a large extent, not about what's articulated, but the impossibility of articulation. So that the, the ink on the white space is really this idea that somewhere between what is what emerges and what cannot emerge is a, a moment of profundity that the, the ineffable happens in. But if that is no longer the quest, then, then it simply becomes a mechanistic exercise in the, in the way in which you find people writing what they think are haikus but are simply three-line poems with a certain syllabic count because the spirit of the haiku is in the turn and the turn is in the change of perception which can only lead from a deep... So I think that this is really what we're struggling with all the time, that we're no longer driving for something deeper, that we're either just privileging our immediate experience or privileging voices that have not traditionally been privileged, uh, or arguing about who should be privileged, whereas the thing that really makes art art is is largely missing in this in this moment, uh, and so that's what I always go for. And therefore, it's impossible to use one form; it is impossible to refuse anything. Mm. But it's also, I think, that we live so historically that we think of this idea: what is revolutionary as passé. You have to imagine how insane it might have been for a man, a jumped-up man who nobody knew, whose dad was a carpenter, to walk around in a Roman time yelling, I'm the son of God. It's like the homeless guy on the corner here in, in Chicago saying, you know, I'm, I'm Jesus, and everybody laughing and walking by. Well, that's no different from the other dude. It's just that after 2,000 years, it's become a safe religion. And so I'm very wary of safety <laughs> and these ideas of what's safe and begin to always look at what happens if you find yourself always in this moment, in this moment where all of those things that we have considered safe can be unsafe. And so it's, it's, always, um, it's always an implication of myself, of my idea, of my own sense of ease in the world, of my own smugness to a certain extent about what I think I know. Uh, and even my realizations that I think of what is good and what is not good are also dangerous because, again, so it's always, you know, struggling against singularity. But the difficulty of that always, of course, is that you can't be located. So your body is always problematic because people want to locate your body somewhere so they can locate your aesthetic somewhere rather than locating your aesthetic so I'm in this real way, which is nomadic. There's an encyclopedia of black writers that came out a while ago, and I'm listed in the black British section, the uh, African section, and the African-American section, because <laughs> apparently there's no one place that my work would go to. And I would actually argue that there are so many writers like that. Um, and so for me, really always what's interesting is, is um, the work I'm making, not how it's knowing the tradition you come from, but always asking yourself, you know, we were talking about that proverb earlier on by the le about the leopard, because the original proverb is essentially um, the Igbo say a person who asks questions never gets lost, which is, again, almost like the, we're talking about this rabbinic, uh, rab, rab, how would you say the, the yeah. rabbinical thrust towards looking for the better question, right? But then somebody, quite possibly not that long ago, maybe even 100 years ago, sitting around having some palm wine and someone challenges him and he tags on this new part of this proverb. So that in this way, you find that African thinking, 
traditional African thinking is always expanding. And you also have to understand that traditional religions have no empirical em, em, empirical thrust. They, they uh, Sorry, imperialistic thrust. They're not dominating. They're not seeking for worshippers. They just exist. And so even when you take Christianity and break it down deeply in early contexts in Africa, it becomes an African religion, which is why the Coptic tradition and uh, Ethiopian church are deeply African in their thinking and very widely from a lot of the Rome, sort of the more Catholic and other kinds of ways of Christian thinking, um, as opposed to sort of the more modernist as we have evangelical drives in, in West Africa. So I think that um, the most difficult problem we're facing in America is this erasure of historical context, because you find Russian poets doing the same. I was just listening the other night to this amazing singing that comes um sort of out of Georgia and Slovenia in languages that are almost extinct in those areas. And I was listening to this incantation, and so I said to my friend, what does this mean? He says, oh, he's singing about what you must do is cut the head off your enemy and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> so that contention with difficulty has always existed within this language of beauty all over the world. And I think that what, what we need to do in the contemporary American moment is reach beyond the border of the American thinking, not gesturally, but but really deeply to find our reconnection to all those places. Can you share a poem? So this poem is from the book Sanctificum, uh, which are movements. And so this is from a movement called Om, and this is poem number five. Somewhere a man speaks in the dark, voice lost to rain. I know this hunger, this need to make patterns, to build meaning from detritus, also the light and the wood floor bare, but for the lone slipper tossed carelessly to one side. I admit the lies I've told. Look, nothing has been true since that picture of hell on the living room wall lost its terror. I say I want a strong woman, but unlike Nato, I cannot have the woman and the fish. The war followed. Children are losing their souls to the heat, which is to say poor American soldiers, which is to say poor African soldiers, which is to say poor Palestinian soldiers, which is to say poor Israeli soldiers. The rich have found a way to charge theirs to American Express, and I say ask this, what is the relationship of desire to memory? Here is a boy in the airport cafe, hair cropped from service, and he closes his eyes to take a sip of coffee, and he smiles as the dark washes the desert away. This is the voice of the Lord. Amen. Chris Abani, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. That was Chris Abani reading poem number five and speaking with Matthew Shinoda. This program was recorded at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago on March 4, 2013, as part of International Poets in Conversation, and was sponsored by the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute's Poets in the World series. The poem read by Chris Abani comes from his most recent collection, Sanctificum, and is published by Copper Canyon Press. Other books by Chris Abani include There Are No Names for Red, Feed Me the Sun, Hands Washing Water, and Dog Woman. Abani has also published five books of prose. Matthew Shinoda's first collection of poems, Somewhere Else, was published in 2005 and was named a debut book of the year by Poets and Writers magazine. His most recent book is Seasons of Lotus, Seasons of Bone. 
You can learn more about Matthew Shinoda and Chris Abani and read some of their work by visiting poetryfoundation.org, where you'll also find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Harriet blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.